Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. They appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, only Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. I sometimes remind my Sunday school class that seminary professors who teach biblical studies are often as narrowly focused as physicians or research scientists. It's not unusual for a seminary professor to spend 40 years of an adult lifetime studying one of the 66 books of the Bible. One such scholar was named Dr. Robert Gulick. He received his bachelor's degree in this country, his master's degree in this country. Then he went to Germany and received his doctoral degree from the University of Hamburg. He decided that since Mark's gospel was the oldest of the four, he would concentrate his adult lifetime on the gospel according to St. Mark. When he came near the end of that productive lifetime, he decided he knew so much about Mark's gospel, he couldn't put it all into one volume, he would write two. He would write 800 pages on the Gospel of Mark, the first 400 in the first volume, and the 400 more in the second. He decided that those who had chopped Mark's Gospel up into chapter and verse had not done it very well, that in fact Mark does divide his Gospel into two halves, but not at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of 9. Instead, it should have ended at chapter 8, verse 26, and then chapter 9 should have begun at 8.27. If you read it that way, you will discover that the second half begins with Jesus taking the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi to a lonely place and asking, who do the people think I am? Heard one fellow say, you're like John the baptizer. I heard one say, you could be Elijah. I heard one say, you're a great prophet. And who do you think I am? Simon said, you are the Messiah of God. And Jesus said, Bless you, Simon. Flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and be killed. There was nothing in the Hebrew Scriptures that described a crucified Messiah. Nothing in the Hebrew Scriptures that talked about a Messiah who would be killed at all. Rather, the Messiah would bring the Messianic age of peace and justice and righteousness to all. So Mark, like those Gospel writers who followed him, would have to try to convince their readers that in fact God's long-awaited Messiah had come and he really was crucified, and then God chose to raise him from the dead. 
The disciples are rocked back on their heels when Jesus is describing a crucified Messiah. Simon's just said that too, he is. Well, I'm about to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things and be killed. And then Jesus reassured them by saying, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they have seen the kingdom of God come in power. Six days later, Jesus took three of the disciples up the mountain. And that's where we get to this story. Right there, after he's just said, Some of you will not die before you have seen the kingdom of God come in power. And Mark believes it happened on the mountain of transfiguration. Let's take a look at the story. Number one, as Jesus ascends the mountain... This is Mark's understanding that that's the way God reveals himself. This is an epiphany, a revealing of God. God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush on the mountain. God revealed to Moses the Ten Commandments on the mountain. God revealed himself to Elijah in a still, small voice on the mountain in the Sinai Desert. So God will make this new epiphany happen on the top of the mountain. But Jesus doesn't take twelve up the mountain with him. He takes three. Peter, James, and John. Now in Mark's gospel, this is not the only time. On one occasion, word comes to Jesus that an official of the synagogue has a daughter who is near death. And that he's begging Jesus to come as quickly as possible. Jesus starts moving through the streets when suddenly he stops and says, Somebody touched me. The disciples said, somebody, somebody, everybody's trying to touch you. He said, somebody touched me for a special reason. He looks around and sees a woman who's trying to shrink back into the crowd. All she did was touch his, touch his robe. She's been sick for more than 30 years. And Jesus said, you are healed. Suddenly somebody came running from Jairus' house and said, too late, the little girl has died. Jesus said, Let's go on. They got to the house, and he took in with him only Peter, James, and John. Reached out his hand and lifted this young girl to life. On the last night of his life, the night he was betrayed, after having celebrated Passover with his disciples, he went to the grove of olive trees that lay just on the east side of the old walled portion of the city. It's called Gethsemane, which is an olive press, if you would, an olive press. And he took the disciples with him, but when they all had sort of stretched out on the grass to rest, he took three farther with him, Peter, James, and John. You see, even Jesus had some he felt closer to, that he trusted more. Maybe think of Jess Lair. You remember Jess? He really burst on the scene back when I was in seminary. Uh, Jess was a very prominent uh, public relations executive in Minneapolis, Minnesota, 39 years old in the mid-60s when suddenly he had a heart attack. Now, not yet 40, his doctors tried to frighten him into changing his lifestyle. No more smoking, no more alcohol, uh, exercise in moderation. Cardiologists couldn't do nearly all the things in the mid-60s they can do today. 
Jess was appropriately frightened. Uh, he gave up his big uh, corporate job he had, went back to college, said he wasn't a religious person, so he, he started trying to find answers at the college, started taking psychology courses, got a bachelor's, got a master's, got a Ph.D. In the meantime, he's been reading things from the 1960 census. You know how they do this. The government plugs all this new data in every 10 years. And in 1960 census, it said... People in the United States do not seem to live longest in the great big cities, nor even in the smallest towns. It seems that people live longer in communities between 25,000 and 75,000 population. They also said people don't seem to live longest on either of the coasts, but in fact nearer the mountain range. Uh, maybe when people can see mountains and be inspired by them. So Jess is now looking for a job to be a college professor in a community between 25 and 75,000 population where he can see a mountain out the kitchen window. Because he's afraid he's going to die. And he sees a little blurb that says they're looking for a professor of psychology in Bozeman, Montana, and he moves his wife and kids out to Bozeman and became a professor. In his first semester in a night course, there was an older gentleman, nearly 80 years old, who waited till everybody had left one particular night, walked up to him and said, Jess, I can tell the way you talk, you've been sick and you think you're going to die, right? Jess said, I'm afraid I'm going to die. Well, the man said, I know I'm going to die, and fairly soon, so I want to tell you something I've learned. You and I don't have time to talk about the weather. You notice how that's what people do? I mean, we all do. Surely is hot. Surely is cold. Have you ever seen this much snow in Tulsa in one winter? We're not halfway through February until today. You know, wet, cold, hot, dry. We talk about the weather. Well, he said, Jess, we don't have time to talk about the weather, you and I. He said, have you ever noticed, Jess, that if you come at somebody from your deepest heart, about four out of five will break and run? But one will come back to you from his or her deepest heart. I've discovered, Jess, you only need three or four people who will do that with you. I'll be one of yours. You just need a couple more. And Jess started looking for somebody who would respond from his or her deepest heart when he would from his own. He wrote a book. I ain't much, baby, but I'm all I've got. And the title's crazy, you know, late 60s, but... The meaning was, I may not have much to bring to the dance, but what I bring will be the real Jess. His second book was, I ain't well, but I sure am better. His third book was, Ain't I a Wonder? Ain't you a wonder too? Third one was, I don't know where I'm going, but I ain't lost. You just need two or three who, when you come from your deepest heart, will come back from his or her deepest heart. Jesus had three special ones. Number two, Mark is very clear about what's happening here. Jesus is transfigured. He's in white. White is the color of the radiance and glory of God. And this is the whitest white these three have ever seen. Whiter than any human could ever bleach, Mark says. And he's standing talking to Moses and Elijah. Moses, the heart of the Torah. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets. The law and the prophets. And then suddenly, only Jesus is left. Just Jesus. 
For you, Peter, James, John, and all of Mark's Gentile readers, the clearest revealer of God for you will be Jesus of Nazareth. There's a documentary on television this week called Seville Row. Did you see that? Seville Row is a place in London where they make great men's suits. There are tailor shops on Seville Row that have been there, same shops for more than 200 years. They have the finest fabrics in the world. They supposedly do the greatest job of fitting customers that you can find anywhere in the world. In the documentary, one of the salesmen said, we could take the hunchback of Notre Dame and make him look like Justin Timberlake, he said. The key to their clothing also is hand-stitching, hand-stitching. You men, have you ever had a suit really made with hand-stitching? When the lapels are hand-stitched underneath, every time you take it to the cleaner, it just rolls that much prettier. It gets better and better with age. Well, guess what's happened to Zaville Row? Abercrombie and Fitch has moved in. They moved into the neighborhood, and they have millions of dollars to spend on advertising. Those who run these little tailor shops are afraid Abercrombie and Fitch will drive up the rental rates in their street. They'll have to move away or go out of business. One of these tailors said, I only say this to all of you. If you buy one of their t-shirts, you may feel like one of the boys. But if you save up and buy one of our suits, you'll know you're the man. You'll know you're the man. Well, this story is about one who was very man of very men and very God of very God and the revealer of God for you and me. Number three. Old Simon. All three of them are terrified. James and John have sense enough to keep their mouths closed. Peter just blurts out. He literally says, why don't we set up three tents here? One for you, Lord, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Why don't we just stay here? Why don't we just hold on to this as long as we can? But the crazy thing about epiphanies is they come and they go. He can feel very close to God and then not so close. And if he's tried desperately to reproduce the setting, God appears when God chooses to appear. Some years ago, I was invited to preach at a Methodist men's retreat in Leesburg, Florida, their conference campsite. I'd been told that this is one of the greatest United Methodist Men's Retreats in America. So I flew in with great anticipation. One of the men met me, drove me to the camp. I was introduced to a federal judge. I was told that he is the conference lay leader and that he really knows how to do these men's retreats. Uh, they showed me to my cabin, and I put my stuff down. They took me to the dining room. These men were gathering from all over Florida, and they were eating. When wives aren't there to elbow them, you know, they eat. And they were eating and eating. But I noticed that all of them for dessert were having big homemade biscuits and apple butter. I asked one of these fellows, 
I've never seen so much apple butter in my life. Where you get all this apple butter? I don't know. He said, I don't even like apple butter till I come to Leesburg. They have the best apple butter in America. I said, well, that's wonderful. They got to it and supper and everybody moves down to the tabernacle. And this judge is orchestrating things. I mean like a puppeteer. He's got four male soloists sitting there. He has a song leader who can make people sing. He's a junior high school principal from 300 miles across Florida who knows how to make men sing. They've got a pianist who discovered years before he couldn't make a living playing piano, so he turned to his second great love. He owns a floral shop and a nursery. But whenever he has opportunity to play, he puts his baby grand piano in a trailer, hauls it halfway across Florida, unloads it, and retunes it before the service starts. He could play anything. So they had a great song leader, they had a great pianist, and this judge is just pulling, you know, quietly. I'm sitting next to him, I can hear him. Say to one of these soloists, get up and sing, he touched me. And he sang it, and the crowd was moved deeply. He said to another, give him five minutes of your life story. He stood up and told him how God had touched his life. He said to another one, sing, his eyes on the sparrow, go. And he sang. It was amazing. What a great weekend. Saturday night late, I flew back to preach on Sunday morning. A couple of years later, I was invited to preach at a church in Fort Lauderdale. And the fellow said to me, we men from this church had such a great experience. We want our wives and kids to have that experience. So they had invited Charlie to come and lead the singing. They had invited this pianist, Billy, to come and play the piano. They had invited a couple of these soloists to come, and they had asked me to come back and preach. He said, and we're even going to have supper just before the first session, and we're going to have apple butter and biscuits. So I got there, and they had done everything they knew how to do to repeat what had happened to them at Leesburg. And when they drove me back to my plane late Friday, uh, Saturday afternoon, he said, we didn't quite make it, did we? We didn't quite make it. Our wives didn't quite feel what we felt. Our kids, I could tell, weren't quite feeling what we felt. Why couldn't we make it happen? One of the commentaries I read this week said, Mark is saying, sometimes you have this experience with God, and you know God was there, and then all you have left when it's over is whatever he told you to do. Whatever he told you to do, just do it till the next time he chooses to let you see something special. So that brings us to number four. That's what Mark says God told the disciples. From a cloud, a cloud that spoke to Jesus alone when he was baptized, you are my son, my beloved, I'm really pleased with you. Now that cloud speaks to the three disciples. This is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. Listen to him. What did Jesus say? Are the most important of all the, all the commandments. He said the first one is what the Jews call the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You must have no other God but him. You must love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second commandment Jesus said is sort of like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's about it. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what that means is you have to be willing to take self out of the center and let God be center, and take self out of the center and let the other be the center. When you do that, when you do that, the kingdom comes. You know that ten days ago, we Biggs has had a, had a tough time. I, I got a call on Thursday that uh, from my brother and sister that my mother had had some kind of little sinking spell. Uh, they'd already uh, had her under hospice care for some weeks. She was living in an assisted living center for a little more than four years now. But this time, she wasn't opening her eyes and not responding. She had asked, and we had all agreed, that we would do nothing heroic. She was three months shy of her 90th birthday. Nothing heroic. We had prayed that when life was no more joy for her, no more meaning for her, God would help her cross the river. So I got home Thursday, and I I said to Gail, I don't know what's going to happen, so I need to do Friday's work on the sermon tonight. I'd done all that I was supposed to the first four days, and so I got in a room all by myself, and I put in another three and a half hours, my Friday work, and I had the sermon ready. And I brushed my teeth and went to bed, and just after midnight, my brother and sister called and said, Mom had died. Gail and I couldn't go back to sleep. It seemed like forever. I was thinking, what have, what, what have I got to do? What have I got to do? Uh, oh, my, Saturday morning I had the Vernon McCoy funeral. Vernon McCoy, wow, how much I owed this family. He and Nathalie had been in this church all the 30 years I had been here. They'd led singing in the Wesley Fellowship Sunday School class. She playing the piano, he leading the singing. They in this choir till they were 75 years old. I'd met with the family. The McCoys had five children. Nathalie died three months before. Now Vernon had died. They had four sons, one daughter. They were that World War II generation. He had served in the military during World War II. From those five children, 12 grandchildren, from those 12 grandchildren, eight great-grandchildren, all of them girls, eight little girls. I'd met with them, and we'd talked about the funeral. Vernon had written out 16 pages in his, in, in his own hand. Sort of hard to read. I'd gone through all 16 pages, read every line of every page, and I had decided what I would be saying Saturday morning. Now I need to be in Texas. So first thing, Friday morning, we called our two boys. My sister had contacted her two. She has one in San Antonio, one in Jacksonville, Florida. My brother, his two, one in San Antonio, one in the hometown of Carthage. Our two boys, of course, here in Tulsa. And we all agreed, Saturday afternoon, 2 o'clock. Everybody has jobs. Our, these six big grandsons of hers all have children, school age. Uh, so we needed to, to, to do this and let everybody get back home again. So that's what we did. Gail and I rushed down Friday morning. Our sons came on down. All six of the grandsons arrived. Saturday morning, we spent cleaning out uh, my mom's apartment there in this assisted living center, moving everything out. And then we had to be shaved and showered and ready for lunch at 12 noon. The little church where we grew up uh, served us lunch. Um, I'm thinking about the McCoy family. I'd called my Brenda Reed, asked her to get Dr. Tankersley to help them with that funeral. And I knew he would do wonderfully well, but I still was sorry that I was not with them. We got through the service on Saturday afternoon, and I wanted to be with you. Um, I finished the sermon on Thursday night. Bill and I, our boys and their families, drove home. 
We got home a little before 10 o'clock that night. I spent another hour and a half just refreshing everything that I'd written before. Gail said, are you sure you can do this so soon after you've buried your mother? I said, yeah, I think so. So last Sunday morning, I got up and thought, I just have to get through the next six hours. I just have to get through six hours. And I stopped by my mailbox when, as soon as I got to the church to see if anybody put anything in there that I needed to know for the services that morning. And there was one of the most beautiful sympathy cards I've ever seen and signatures of 39 members of the McCoy family. That's the way you do it. <laughs>